Before I came to serve at All Nations, uh, I served at a church in Houston, Texas. And in 2017, before moving to Southern California, I had the privilege and blessing of sitting through Hurricane Harvey. Um, yes, it was as dramatic as the news made it out to be, just not as often as the, they made it out to be. And I remember sitting on the third floor apartment that I had for six to seven days doing nothing but sitting and watching the news. And I have never watched the Weather Channel so much consecutively in my life. And the news was always the same. The people most in need were not able to be reached because emergency responders could not navigate the streets of flooded parking lots and alleyways and highways and everything that we had seen driving through the city of Houston at that point was underwater. Now after three days of sitting there watching the, the, the water levels rise slowly even in our parking lot and my car, my beautiful Volkswagen Passat was slowly becoming covered in water, there was nothing that I could do. I had neighbors go out there with buckets, try to get water away from the car, but the problem was it was in the middle of a parking lot, and you can't, you can't get rid of water in a parking lot by yourself. And three days into this, this hurricane and, and, and getting phone calls and pictures and videos from all of my family members who were in dry, sunny locations of America, I realized that I was running out of food and I was running out of water. They told us not to drink the faucet water because the sewage systems of Houston had completely overrun. So anytime you turn on the faucet, there was a 50-50 chance that it was poopy water. And as adventurous as I am in food and drink, that was not something I wanted to risk. And I also realized after three days, man cannot live on ketchup and barbecue sauce alone. And as I looked outside on the sidewalk, I saw the water levels rising. I could see just over the trees that the grocery store that I go to, H-E-B, which is about three, four blocks away, was still there. And I had been calling them after the second day because I got nervous. And finally, someone picked up and said, we will be open today for three hours because half of our employees drove and canoed into work to serve the community, knowing that nobody here has access to food. Now, I don't have a canoe at home. But being a big boy, I put on my rain boots, which were my rainbow sandals, and I put on as little clothes as possible. And it seemed like the entire apartment complex had been calling HEB, and we all in the afternoon, when it was still stormy and raining and lightning and thundering, uh, we decided to make this mass exodus. And what is a 60-second drive turned out to be almost a 30-minute walk, where we had to literally find different routes to get to HEB. And finally, after this miraculous trip through the rain, through the lightning, through the thunder, we got to the parking lot, and we realized that there were 200 people, more than 200 people, in line waiting in the rain because they had such small numbers of employees that they were only allowing 50 to 60 people into the grocery store at a time. And so I got in line at the very end, and I do what I do normally when I'm bored. I just stare at people, and I wonder in my mind, I wonder in my mind, can I figure this person out? And two, in light of this tragedy, where can I find Jesus? This farmer behind me began to strike up a conversation. I don't really talk to farmers that often. And I said, how are you, sir? I'm sorry that we, you know, you're having a hard time. And he said, I'm a farmer. And right now at home is my wife. And the farm was so flooded that we had to bring in our 12 cows and our sheep and our pigs and our chickens into our house, into our living room, because... They're going to die if I leave them out there. And if I was a farmer and my animals were in my house, I mean, if I was a farmer and I had animals that I had to clean up after, I would be miserable all the time. But this man was weirdly optimistic and joyful, and he said, I finally understand what Noah felt like, 
ha, ha, ha. And I was astounded by this old guy's enthusiasm, but also his joy in such a delightfully difficult situation. And then in front of me, there was a mother with four children just huddled together without an umbrella, and we were all trying our best to cover her with our umbrellas in the line. And she said that she had just spent four hours in the car driving six miles because wherever she went, the road was closed, something was flooded. And she said the entire time I was driving to this HEB, as I was getting closed and closed and closed on all the roads, I thought to myself, you're failing, you're failing, your children are hungry, you're failing as a mother. And I said, I I can't imagine how that feels, miss, but um, how did you get here? What did you do? And she said, every time my brain told me that you're failing and that your kids are going hungry and that you're a failure as a mother, I said, Jesus has me. Jesus has me. Jesus has me, and here I am. Now, that's a nice Christian story, but we eventually got into the store, and she got a bunch of food, and she was about three people in front of me in the register lounge, and she had two carts worth of food. And finally, when it was time for her to pay for her groceries, she realized in her pockets that she forgot her wallet. And I don't know if you're like me at Target, if you take more than your allowed time in front of me that I determined in my mind, I'm going to breathe out loud so you can hear me in annoyance, I'm going to roll my eyes, and I'm going to, I literally tap my foot at Target, and I make sure that I'm making eye contact with you, I'm like, let's go. But what's interesting is that that day, no one exhaled. No one stared at her. No one gave passive-aggressive huffs of frustration. And this cliche Texas Clint Eastwood-looking guy right behind her slid forward through her children and simply and quietly swiped his credit card and said, get your kids home and feed your babies. A new path. And finally, there was a young couple who was eight months pregnant Their house was flooded, so they went to their neighbor's house. Their neighbor's house was flooded. They went to their best friend's house. That best friend's house was flooded. And they finally went to her parents' house, and her parents' home eventually flooded. So they're like the walking bad luck example of... And and they're eight months pregnant, first child, young couple, and they barely have jobs out of college. And I would have just been frightened out of my mind and miserable knowing that this child could come at any minute. And, And the entire time, she says to me, If Jesus can be born in a manger, I know that he has us in this hurricane. If Jesus is born in a manger, I know that this hurricane is nothing that God can't handle. And I know that I'm in ministry, and I know that I'm a Christian, but I was looking at her like, you need to be more stressed out because this is not a good situation. I need you to increase your anxiety with me. But if Jesus was born in a hurricane or in a manger, then God has everything over this hurricane. It was a new path. In today's text, we witness a great miracle where God parts the Red Sea, and it's one of the best stories in the Bible in the Old Testament, and something that we've all witnessed uh, in, in Bible story presentations and sermons starting in Sunday school. And as we've progressed through our series in Exodus, we've witnessed God call his servant Moses and Aaron, reveal his power and glory through miracles and plagues and defeating the idols and gods of Egypt. We see God contend with Pharaoh's heart and heart. We see God's faithfulness revealed in the preservation of his people, of Passover, of even how to make your bread. And God even goes so far as to say, plunder as you leave. Take this gold, take this silver, and take what you will need for the travels and road ahead of you. But something changes in verses 5 through 9 as Egypt had just released, Pharaoh had just released Israel in recognition that God was God and that they had been defeated. There's this sense of humility, but in verse 5, something changes. 
It says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had finally fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? You see, just after this moment of humility, Pharaoh and his advisors, as they're watching their workforce, their free, exploited workforce, leave Egypt, they immediately change their minds, thinking, how can we afford to still be a world power if we lose our slaves? Isn't this ironic? They had just gone through this sheer revelation of God's power and majesty, and immediately after, they're thinking, I've changed my mind. God's not enough, and we want to keep what is ours and exploiting the people of Israel. And it's even more difficult to understand because Pharaoh himself was the hardest hit in losing his firstborn, the heir to the throne of Egypt. And so Pharaoh gathers 600 of the greatest military weapon known to existence at that time, the chariot. And he doesn't get 10, he doesn't get 20. Pharaoh calls 600 chariots with officers. So this is 18, more than 1,800 soldiers, more than 1,200 horses, and Pharaoh himself leading this army of weapons against a former slave, defenseless, carrying their babies and, and all their worldly possessions in their hands, walking on foot people. This is as if all nations were somehow at war with the United States, and they sent four battleships and 9,000 army rangers to come and defeat us. You don't need to do that. Just yell, and I'm sure that we'll be like, okay. We'll just send Sock with a stern look on his face. This is overkill. And as Pharaoh and his 600 chariots chase down Israel and finally come to overtake them at Pi-Hahiroth on the shores of the Red Sea, verse 10 through 18 shifts the perspective from Pharaoh's stubbornness to what Israel is experiencing. They're consumed by fear, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it, become there are, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Are you serious right now? They became afraid and blamed Moses and God for tricking them and bringing them into the wilderness so that they would suffer and die as if God was a masochist or took pleasure in the suffering and pain of his people. And they have the audacity to say that they didn't want to leave Egypt in the first place. That they said to Moses, as he was saying, this is what God is going to do for you. I don't want to hear it. Leave us alone. We want to be right here, and we don't want anything to change. But didn't God hear their cries in Exodus 3, when they were crying out in their suffering and pain and asking for deliverance? Didn't Israel confess their faith in God, that God was God and that they were his people? Didn't Israel witness the power and sovereignty through God through the works of Moses, the ten plagues? And the irony is this, just like Pharaoh, they had just witnessed these things, the revelation of God's sovereignty. And so they turn from God in fear of Pharaoh, whom God just defeated. And we begin to see that Israel's so-called faith 
is not what it really is supposed to be, faith. And the deeper irony for me as I was reading this over and over again is that Pharaoh and Israel are basically the same entity here. Over and over again, Pharaoh is hardened against God, and God reveals that I am the sovereign Lord Yahweh, not you, not your gods. Come before me in humility. And Pharaoh goes through cycles like, no, I will not do it. And then he gets defeated. Maybe you are God. No, I will not do it. And then he gets defeated. Maybe you are God. And finally, at the end of the ten plagues, he confesses the sovereignty and majesty of God over the gods of Egypt. And he says, you are the Lord. Take your people and go do what you will. And I will humbly submit and surrender to you. And immediately after, he hardens his heart. And Israel does the same thing over and over again. And spoiler alert, the rest of the Old Testament, if you read from Exodus, this is the cycle that they go through. We will never betray you. We will always obey. Let our grandchildren's children all die if we ever go against our word and our commitment to be faithful to you. And then they went in the desert and they were thirsty. I hate you, God. You're the worst. Why did you do this to us? And then they stubbed their toe on a rock. God is the worst. He hates us also. We don't have bread. We don't have the type of meat that we want. The only thing that separates Pharaoh and Israel is simply the fact that God chose Israel as his own, not because they're worthy, but because he is. That's the only thing that differentiates the people of God from every other nation and people on earth. And Moses replies to the faithless and fickle Israelites in verses 13 through 14, He says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses is resolute in his trust, grounded in faith in the sovereignty of God. When all others around him are shaking and trembling in fear, Moses holds on in faithful, trusting grit. God will not only save his people, but he will make a new path for his people. Do you understand the geographic situation that they're in? Behind them is nothing but sand and 600 chariots whose sole existence in that moment is to find the Israelites and to either kill the Israelites or to bring them back as slaves, which is the same thing as a death sentence. In front of them is the Red Sea, and they can't swim with all those people. There is nowhere else to go. And yet Moses says, stand firm, for God will do what is necessary, and all we must do is believe and stand firm. And once again, God himself reminds his people of his plan and his covenant and his sovereignty and his glory already revealed to them in verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? I love that. In other words, God is saying, as if I have not been clear with you up to this point, why are you coming back to me wondering what I'm going to do? I'm going to save you. I've called you. I will do it on my own, not because you are worthy, but because I am. Get with the program. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots. 
and his horsemen. And God, being ever faithful in the next verses of 19 through 20, shows his faithfulness and his power by taking the pillar of cloud that he was leading with and moving it from the front of Israel to the back to divide and to be a barrier of protection between the Egyptians and Israel. And finally, in the closing verses of 21 through 31, God says to Moses, lift up your hands. Lift up your hands so that through you and your faithful obedience, my power will come. And as we all know and we read today, the Red Sea parted all through the night and the people walked through on dry ground in this impossible new path to the promised land, to the covenant and to the presence of God. And just as Israel walks through dry land, Pharaoh witnesses this and rushes in after them. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a tactician, I'm not a military guy, but if I'm on a horse and I'm going to run after my prey or my enemy, and there's a, a split narrow area of dry land on walls of water on both sides that are probably filled with rocks and boulders, I'm not taking my horse in there. But Pharaoh in his arrogance not only goes in there after them, but he takes into his entire army after them, and they're confused, and Moses raises his hands, and the waters fall down. And verse 30 through 31 closes our text saying, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So what does this mean for us? There's a few things I want to challenge and leave us with. The first thing is this, everything is for God's glory. In verse 14, or in verse 4 and 17, God clearly lays out the direction and ethic of why he moves to redeem, preserve, and rescue Israel for, from their suffering. It's not so me, that his people would merely just live okay lives, but it was for his glory. The splitting of the Red Sea is indeed a miraculous and crazy thing. It's ridiculous, otherworldly, and an amazing display of God's majesty, sovereignty, and power, but the Red Sea was not split to merely save Israel. It was so that his glory would be established and revealed and so that the people would see the power of God and believe in a growing and maturing way. First and foremost, it is a display of God's glory. And I almost wanted to stop and smile when I said the first point because I, I could sense our eyes glazing over because we say that all the time as Christians for the glory of God. What does that mean, though? It means that no matter who you are and where you are and what you do, our desire in pursuing faithful excellence should be to honor and glorify God for what he has done. And if we, glorify, if we seek the glory of God in what we do and who we are and what we say and how we love and how we participate in the redemptive work of God, it means that no matter who you are, that you have inherent worth and value because God has called you for his own glory that you are not your own. We don't take seriously enough the fact that you are a reflection, that I am a reflection of God's glory because he has created us in his image. And so as we pursue the, the lifting high of the name and the majesty and the character of God, that is not something that we do on our choice that is extra, but that is an inherent part of who we were created to be. It's so vastly important. And the question for me and for us then is, when we wake up in the morning, do we strive to live that God would be known through our jobs, through how we love our families, through our relationships, our community building, our service? 
and through how we walk and, and talk and breathe. And if we are pursuing the glory of God in faithfulness, it means that we have to grow in excellence. There's this idea in the church that I, I'm so, I was so glad that Pastor Michael and DC shared is that in the church we tend to say, oh, if they're just faithful, then let's let them do it. I want to be on praise team. And you can talk to them and they're like, they can't sing to save their life. Or I want to help draw the mural at church in the children's ministry. But their best Van Gogh moment is stick figures and maybe on a good day. I want to serve children. And if I, like me, like I want to serve children for the glory of God. But I'm not a big fan of children all the time. And I get extremely sick of them quickly because my patience is, is limited. But we think what? Oh, they're just faithful, so let them do it. No! If we pursue the glory of God, then it's supposed to be in a faithfully growing manner in excellence. Some of you have been in your jobs for 30 years, and if you've been there for 30 years and you're not any better at your job than when you started, you are not, by definition, faithful. You are not pursuing the glory of God. You are being disobedient to how you have been called, and you are rejecting the value that the gospel places on who you are as a child of heaven. If you've been at church, in church for 40 years and you are not growing and discipling others in your knowledge and love and obedience and grace of God, if you are the same today as a Christian than you were 5, 10, 15, 30 years ago, with all humility and love, you are not faithful. To glorify God and to pursue his, his, his shining honor in our lives is not only to be faithful, but to grow in excellence and a desire to make him known. Just imagine... This is why my wife says to me already, you've changed. I've been married a year and a half, and you don't do the things that you used to do for me in the beginning. Yeah, you were going to Turkey, and you could have died. You're here now. We're married. Where are you going to go? Second thing is this. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, says, Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. What he's saying is, Faith is the perspective through which we see life, our experiences, not by our experience, not by our physical understanding and situations and circumstances. And second, the big point after that is faith requires action or a response. Faith is not something we hold on to. It's not information or knowledge that we have, but it requires knowledge and response. Psalm 23, 4 says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We can believe and continue to live no matter what is coming because we know that the presence of God in faith is with us. It doesn't mean that when we're scared or it's difficult, we can just stop. But faith compels us to continue to boldly and courageously walk because of the presence of God. Isaiah 43, 1 through 2, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and go through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. Just because there's water everywhere and everything's flooding and nothing is going well and your enemies are behind you and there does not seem to be a path in front of you does not mean that God has abandoned you. He will be with us. So be steadfast and live faithfully. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is calling and promising Abraham, if you trust in faith that I am with you in all things, go, and I will go with you, and I will empower you, and I will protect you, and I will grow you. 
and multiply you. Merely knowing about God does not mean that we know who God is. Seeking the things that are adjacent to God or godliness, but not actually seeking God himself, is not faithfulness. We are to walk in an active life that reflects faithfulness after the glory of God, not just to live according to our circumstances as our primary goal. Now, as I was going through this preparation, I was sharing this idea with a student, and then she said to me, Pastor Paul, I think you're wrong, and I had to do everything in my power not to destroy a college student theologically. But here's what she said. She says, doesn't Hebrews 11 say this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And she said, Pastor Paul, this sounds like faith is more of a belief or a feeling or knowledge and conviction in your mind. And I said, keep reading. And the rest of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jacob twice, sorry, Moses, Israel, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, not Obama, but someone in the Bible, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, etc., had faith, and by faith they were compelled to live in obedience for the glory of God in a growing and maturing way. Some of us in here think that we are faithful, but we are walking as if we get to determine and dictate when, when God does things and who God does it with and how God moves in our lives. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. When things get scary, we don't get to give up. We don't have to give up because we know that the presence and faithfulness of God is established here. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that the love of Christ, the cornerstone and foundation of our faith, is not merely knowledge, feeling, or something that we possess. But Paul says the love of Christ compels, moves us after the new path of redemption by the blood of Christ. And that perfectly leads us into our final point. The third point that I want to leave us with is God makes a new path for us in Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure that you've hopefully reflected on this, but you and I are Israel. Not just in being in a difficult spot with our enemies at the back threatening death and condemnation and the Red Sea that we can't change the physics of this world or nature, but you and I are also Israel in the fact that we go through cycles of faithfulness or pseudo-faithfulness and rejecting God's honor and glory. But the hope that we have here, especially in the Old Testament in the story of the Red Sea parting, is that God's love in Christ given for us The miracle of grace is that Jesus goes to the cross and takes the punishment of our sins on his shoulders and he makes a new path for us to redemption where there was no path before. You see, you and I could not approach God in righteousness and we had no hope but our deserved condemnation and suffering for eternity. We could not draw to the promise of God, the promised land. We could not come near the intimacy of our heavenly father into heaven. And yet Jesus goes forward on the cross, and by his blood, he not only cleanses us, but he pays for our sins, and he says, by my blood, you have a new path forward. His grace is what frames our lives. This is what emboldens us. You and I are not stuck any longer on the shores with nowhere to go. In Christ, we are free to live boldly and faithfully after the glory of God. What other miracle, sign, or word do we hope for? Is not the cross of Christ enough? Is it not more than enough? Does it not call us to trust in what God is doing in our lives? 
The miracle of the Red Sea parting is not merely a power move or a miraculous revelation. The parting of the Red Sea is an invitation to Israel to a new life in him. Maybe this will close our time together today. Um, I went to Korea when I was in when I was in 17, age, age old, years old. When I was in when I was 17, I went to Korea, and my dad was a my dad was a professor at this at this place, um, this seminary there, and and I was given a tour one day, and there was this really bronze golden door on the top floor, and I was not allowed in, and the only people that were allowed in that room was the president of the seminary and the people that he liked. And supposedly in that room was an executive bathroom, a shower, a large TV, refreshments, and the most comfortable couches in the world. And I, because I wanted to, I wanted to go in there. And because I had nothing to do for the first week, I came up with ways of, of asking people in my broken Korean if I could go in there. And I asked every secretary in the office building. I would, I would go up to them and I would say, uh, America? And can I go in there? And they'd be like, oh, America, oh, and there. <laughs> in English, that's, oh, that's nice for your America. No, you can't go in there. And I asked my dad, and my dad wouldn't even consider letting me in there, even though he was allowed to go in there himself, and I was his firstborn son. He says, you have not earned the right to do it. A month into the trip, I had failed in my endeavors, and finally on the last day, I went to go to the seminary and say bye to the professor and the owner of the seminary and the, and the president of it. And as I was walking out, this lady that had always said hi to me but never talked to me came up to me literally as I was about to walk out the door. And she said, come with me. And I said, this is either going to end amazing and I'm really attractive in Korea and women just want me to be alone with them or I'm scared because it's just weird. And she took me up a stairway that I'd never been before. And we go to the top of the building and she says, open that door. And I open it, and it's the lounge. It's the promised land. <laughs> and I looked at her before walking in, and I said, how did you get here? And, there, and she said, there are two people in this building that know that there's a back door, and it's me and the president. Now you're the third, and if you tell anybody, in Korean, she literally said, I will fly to America and make your intestines into panchan, <laughs> or food. Now, just because you're going to be wondering, the room wasn't that great, the couches were not that comfortable, and it was just things that I could buy at the corner grocery store anyway, so it was all hype in my mind. But the idea is that I was not allowed to go in, and yet somehow she just allowed me to go in. Now, this ridiculous story is not important, but it will stick in our hearts and our minds because this is what Christ does for us. He allows us in. When we could not go in before, despite threats of making my body parts into food, and despite my inability to speak Korean well enough to convince other people to go in, the true miracle of the Red Sea in Christ is that God makes a new path for us to walk through, to be faithful, to pursue excellence, and to glorify and honor his name in all that we are and in all that we do. And that that would be the thing that we pursue as a church and as a people who have been redeemed by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, let us not take lightly the fact that you have chosen your people according to your perfect will and sovereignty, and that you are the one that makes us worthy. And so in that humility, in accepting this nonsensical paradox called grace, won't you stir within our hearts 
Will you stir within our hearts, Father, just a, a desire to respond in joy and celebration and honoring you? That as we are moved and compelled by the Spirit, that we would be intentional in the knowledge of our identity and who we are, that we would seek to glorify and honor you and bring you just all due just attention, that we would lift your name high with, with, this, with, this, with every fabric and moment of our being. And Father, we confess that we have not been intentional. We've confessed that we have taken for granted the very mystifying, miraculous nature of even the cross. And yet your mercy remains still for, for the truth is that you are faithful and we are not. Lord, that we would continue to live out of your grace that we would continue to seek for the new path that you are opening up before us. And that in this, in this thing called life that you have called us to, um, Father, that we would just be a, a beacon of, of just pointing towards your name and your love, not only for ourselves, but for one another as well. We thank you for your presence with us this, this day and for the rest of our days. That's your name we pray. Amen.